Today's podcast is brought to you by FX Guides Insider Members. Our ability to produce great content is built on the generous contribution of FX Guide members through the Insider Program. If you want to join or find out more about it, go to fxguide.com slash fxinsider and keep an eye out for special exclusive content. Hi and welcome to this week's VFX show number 183, cruising towards 200 VFX shows. There we go. Thanks to your support and thanks to our guest hosts, including Matt Wallen, who's joining me, and Jason Diamond, who's returning to the show after some trouble. Matt, how are you? Uh, I'm great. We had uh, tornado warnings here in town today. It was super exciting, and uh, but no real tornado. It was just a, just a warning. And Jason, you've rebuilt the tech bunker? Yes, I'm in a new second-floor tech bunker, so uh, hopefully away from any floods or other natural disasters. <laughs> With some really good fire <laughs> alarms, I'm willing to bet. Yes. Yeah, smoke detectors. Yeah, good good call. Um, okay, well, uh, we're going to be discussing The Mighty Godzilla, uh, a film uh, that has uh, done incredibly well at the box office, especially as it wasn't actually a mega budgeted film it's obviously a tentpole picture but it wasn't um you know of the sort of order of magnitude of a film uh of some of the other summer releases that we've seen maybe some other i don't know walking robot films um and it's gone exceptionally well it certainly found an audience but let's find out what the panel thinks of godzilla starting with you matt uh i dug it i mean i thought it was so much fun had a blast i i went with my um my 10 year old son and my wife and uh my wife and son and I, like when he was really little, we used to watch um, some of the older, uh, you know, man in costume <laughs> Godzilla films, the Toho Godzilla films, just for fun. And so my son grew up watching those and he was always a big, big fan. And I was a big fan growing up watching them as a kid, too. They used to show them on KTLA Channel 5 in Los Angeles in the summertime. You could always catch like an old Godzilla movie every once in a while. And so I was I was excited to see this and... Um, you know, the trailers made it look like it was going to be a lot of fun. And then, of course, the, you know, the Gareth Edwards connection um, made it look like it was going to be, uh, you know, something kind of special. And, um, you know, I, I do have a couple of problems with the film that we can get into. But um, uh, it was the first time in a long time I saw it in a crowded theater here in Richmond, Virginia. And it was the first time that I can remember in, a, I mean, in years and years where Round around, round about um, hour two into the movie, when uh, we first get our first big reveal of um, Godzilla himself, the audience in the theater erupted in cheers, and it was really fun. It was so neat to have that kind of experience uh, again, and I think um, there's some reasons why I think that happened in the way that it did that are directly related to um decisions on the director's part too which i think um, we can get into but i I really enjoyed the movie i thought it was a a really fun ride yeah just before we get to jason and spoiler alert but uh, when when godzilla collapsed uh in the film there was a teenager in our cinema and ours was also packed who literally out loud went oh no (laughs) the whole theater just erupted but i say the theater also erupted the first time uh that uh 
there was that moment on screen, I think they were on board the uh, Navy ship, where Ken Wannabe turns to somebody and says, we got him, Godzilla. I didn't hear the rest of the, the scene, I don't think. The audience was cheering and laughing and clapping so hard. Um, that another character said some line. I never heard it. Um, our audience was just like, yeah, Godzilla. Um, what about you, Jason? Uh, I, I also dug it. Uh, it wasn't perfect, and no $160 million movie will ever be perfect, uh, no matter the director's intent. Uh, but uh, same, same you know, feeling as Matt got, like super excited, and uh, some friends of mine had seen it while I was at work, work out in LA working, and they just shit all over it. And they were like, "It's the worst movie I ever saw." And blah. So I went into it with very low expectations, uh, after having very high expectations from the trailer. And maybe it, I just hit it right in the middle. Uh, I, I I really dug it. I thought all the monster stuff was amazing, and uh, all the nods to movies that we all grew up with, like, you know, Godzilla going under the boat is clearly a Jaws reference. You know, there was a bunch of really nice homages, even if they maybe even were subconscious. Oh, I think they were very explicit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Gareth is very versed in film language. Yeah. And Spielberg, Close Encounters, Jaws, they were all referenced almost completely explicitly. Yeah. Um, and, and I can almost guarantee that in Ken Watanabe's... Uh, contract he probably said if anyone says godzilla before me i'm quitting yeah. i am the <laughs> first guy who gets to say godzilla and i get to say it like a japanese guy Gojira. yeah it was great he's great um okay yeah. so so i obviously liked it as well um let's discuss the big uh script and directorial decision to withhold a lot of godzilla stuff and tease it till the third act now yeah to be really clear about this, there is no reason on paper that they had to do that. This is not like uh, they had no money or that uh, they were running behind or they had to rewrite the script. It was deliberate, conscious decision. They're going to hold back and not do a uh, Pacific Rim and have just mega sequences right out of the gate. And, and to the point that he was just toying with the audience, right? Like it just gets mm-hmm. to a point that like, now they're about to attack and we cut away to news footage. You know, now they're about to attack and somebody closes the door. And it was like, and so in a world where you can show everything and you can just have VFX porn, he didn't. He just had uh, this sense of, I'm going to hold it back and hold it back and hold it back. And then at the end, they're going to have a fight and it won't just be... Um, them on screen for 20 minutes without anything else. I'll try and get some character stuff in uh, so that you care about something else on the screen that's actually human. And and that's the conscious decision that uh, that the film went down. Criticised in some quarters for not having Godzilla more earlier. But is that is that, do you think, a criticism that is valid? Or is that the criticism you actually want? Because much with a great meal, you want people leaving the table wanting more as opposed to saying, yeah, yeah, I've seen all the Godzilla, I don't need any more. What do you yeah, recommend? I think, I think that's a great insight. I mean, I, you know, my feeling was that, you know, they they withhold uh, Godzilla for the first hour of the film. You don't really ever get a chance to see any monster action. And I, I really felt like, you know, I think there were a lot of problems in that first hour that had nothing to do with anything uh, other than, well... Uh, nothing to do with the, the the setup and Godzilla. I think it could have been a, a stronger first hour in certain ways that we could get into if you want to. But um, I thought that it was a really smart move to withhold from the audience and to 
to let the audience really build um, in that anticipation and that kind of almost like giddy anxiety of like craving this moment to see Godzilla. And I actually thought that the reason why there was this eruption of applause um, in the theater when he finally does appear is because it was almost like this cathartic release in the audience where it was like, yes, this is why we bought a ticket to see this movie. And this is what we've been waiting to see. And I kind of thought that, you know, that kind of that audience manipulation on the part of the filmmakers in this case was really brilliant because it sort of, it does harken back to kind of those movies that, you know, a lot of us grew up with, you know, um, where it wasn't, you know, slam bam like you know open with a big action set piece like it was it was much more uh, deliberate pacing and i think that um that kind of that manipulation of the audience anticipation and expectation um really allows for a great payoff it felt like a really masterful stroke in my mind well you also go into it knowing you know a lot of these movies you go into like pacific rim the audience doesn't know anything right they're learning either at the same time as the characters or the characters know more than them. In this case, the audience went into the film opening scene knowing, A, that Godzilla exists, and B, that he's going to show up. So the audience has been waiting for it from the opening credits, right? So you, so it's, you really have to play it right when all the characters on the screen have no idea what's going on until like you said like you know middle of end of act one when they even mention him and you see the motus uh coming out so i think i think it was smart to hold it back the way they that he did it's a bit of a of a game sort of in the like the jj abrams mystery box game uh which he ends up losing most of the time but i think that Gareth going for the Spielberg, you know, reveal less is more. It's the thing. Spielberg it, close encounters, isn't it? I mean, let's yeah. face it. Like well, it's Jaws. It's, it's everything. It's, it's, it's holding but, but, everything but in back. In Jaws, you could it, argue they had to do it. Like in Jaws, it was a yes, mechanical true. breakdown. In Close true. Encounters, I think it's a better example. Because in Close Encounters, you had that scene on the road where the little ones kind of kind of fly around. And then when it happened at the end, you were just, I mean, I remember it. it was just like, I so wanted him to get to the top of that bloody mountain so I could see what the bloody hell was going on. Right. And then when they come, it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, oh wow, you know, this is a fulfillment, but I don't know, I could have stood another hour and a half of just seeing those big ships, because then I'd have got the first ever, ever, ever Star Trek film, where I just had visual effect after visual effect after visual effect, and I'm just kind of got right. bored with it. Right, and I, I, that's what I'm saying, I I agree, you want character development, and you want your, you want to believe in your characters, I wish there was more Cranston, personally, uh, but that's just, I love Brian Cranston, I think mm. he could sell so he he can sell he could sell sell that whole movie just with his eyes without even talking uh but uh i i, I thought all conceptually it was great you know uh holding it back was good when and and peeling him out slowly was totally fine for me uh because then when you got those big wide classic godzilla shots where they're standing in the in the uh city and and the motu does like a leap off a building you know top rope elbow drop (laughs) you know that's what you want like you want that you want the feeling of the men in suits you know what i mean but you want it to look really good like that's why even like the design on godzilla where they left his legs and his like his pants a little baggy kind of like it, it it still had the big wide ankled you know godzilla vibe 
but still looking like super sleek. We moved yes. away from the iguana of the 1998 Roland yes. Emmerich film. Yeah. We, uh, well, he the, even the had the like Jay pecs. Leno lore of uh, Jay, Jay Leno jawline of the uh, yeah that uh, Godzilla. Yeah. That one almost had like biceps and arms. Like there was that one was really weird. Yeah, yeah, that one wasn't Godzilla. And and quite frankly, it wasn't a whole lot of other things. <laughs> no, it was terrible. Um, yeah. So, okay. So I think I'm. I'm look, you know, like I, I've made no secret of the fact I'm like friends with Gareth. I just think he's brilliant, and um, and I wouldn't hear a word against him. <laughs> That's me. Um, I also got to interview him. I've also got to hang out with the visual effects team in LA um, while they were making the film. And uh, of course, we've got article on FX Guide. We've got stuff uh, coming up, um, and and uh, and um, you know, there's more stuff coming. So we we know this film pretty pretty well. But I I think it's fair to offer um, criticism as we always do of the story and of the visual effects. So what did you think, story wise, um, Matt? You you alluded to something about the first hour. You would change. Well, I don't know that I could. I, it would be. I'd have to sit and think about specifically things that I would change, I guess, in terms of the plot. Um, but I thought there were some problems in the first, uh, just in some of the choices, I guess they were, they were curious to me. Like after watching the film, I sort of walked out and thought, Hmm, that's kind of interesting. Like, you know, you have Juliet Binoche, uh, who is, you know, a world renowned actor who's so gifted and so great. And she's barely in the movie, not even really in the movie long enough to, have any for me any real meaningful emotional resonance although i guess she becomes the the force that drives the cranston character and then of course brian cranston who like jason was saying earlier yeah he's i mean he's amazing he's just so magnetic on screen and his voice um is so resonant and really powerful um in the trailers and in all the lines that he delivers really in the film but i thought that the um and this is a a weird one but i it really bothered me i thought the 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 hair piece that they had on him and the <laughs> the way they, they put bangs in it kind of, it just, I, I, I was, I was amazed that he was able to act through that, you know, like he could still convey something like it to me, it was so distracting. It was really odd. Um, and then the, um, the character, the actor who uh, plays the son who kind of becomes sort of the audience proxy um, for a, a good part of the story, the, the, the son who, you know, um, is the sort of the soldier, right. Who has the demolition Mm. background. Um, you know, I was surprised that he became sort of the human lead. Um, that wasn't really something that I saw coming or expected only in that. Like I, I, I now looking back, I now know that I did see him in one other movie, that Oliver Stone movie, uh, savages, I guess. He was also the lead in kick-ass. Which I, it's not a, I wasn't really yeah. familiar with that uh, <laughs> film, but, um, but, uh, so he was a, a an odd choice from, from my perspective to be, um, the lead in a film like this only in that, like he, he didn't seem to have much, uh, of a range or an opportunity to demonstrate much of a range. Um, and so that, that part of the story, well, you know, it's it's nitpicky i think to some degree like it just the family component didn't really click in any really meaningful way for me it was sort of like it felt like it was checking off um uh you know boxes like okay we've got this component this iconic component this you know sort of key character moment but rather and it it didn't feel um very 
true. Uh, I would have. Heart, I would have rather that. I would have rather that the kid died and Cranston, like again, like that was his further motivation to keep to keep chasing, and he was the main character. But you know, a, a studio is not going to make a movie with a fifty-something-year-old lead that's a, considered a, a tentpole, you know, kids action movie. They want, you know, the 20-year-old 20, 20 male lead. It's a demographic. I mean, I'm obviously not privy to these conversations, but I can only imagine that it's this, like some marketing demographics meeting that, you know, molded the script in some way. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think... Well, let me ask you a sort of slightly different question. I mean, if you've got to cast the father and the mother... Don't you cast them with the best actors that you can get? I mean, the criticism oh. sounds like if you've got actors this good, they should have had bigger roles. But but no, I just didn't. The I just didn't. No, no, I, I just but, didn't feel connected to the to that character. No, I understand that. But but leaving him aside for a second, just getting back to the father and the mother, who were you know certainly Matt, you said that you thought they were really great actors in those two roles. But my thing is, you know, if you've got to cast those two roles, and that is the extent of those two roles in your story. As opposed well, you, to you building yeah, no, a star I, vehicle around I, them, don't you just get I, the I best totally, actors you can? Yeah, no, I, I I don't disagree in any way with that assessment of it from that perspective. I think you're. It's true. Like, yeah, like yeah. Like get I agree. The, the hairpiece was pretty dodgy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but it's a but 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 I mean that that aside, I think that you know there there were if if I had a a a bone to pick with this film, like and you know. You know, whatever. Who am I to really even say this? It's just my opinion, right? And I'm just going to throw it out there. And um, I think you know, Edwards uh, as a filmmaker. I mean, I think he's you know incredibly gifted and so smart and so um, uh, from everything I've you know heard from him, he's so uh, just a kind you know uh, guy who doesn't really he doesn't seem to even have a big head about any of it. You know, it's really cool. Like he's he is um, the first in my mind. He's the first like guy to come from visual effects like directly from visual effects and like actually hit a home run. Like I think a lot of people have come from visual effects and, you know, hit a single. Uh, I think he's the first guy to really like just crush it and really nail it in so many ways. Um, so I, I mean, nothing but respect. I would just say that, you know, in this film, and I don't know what the forces were at work, you know, and I'm sure it was, you know, a huge learning curve, I would imagine for anybody coming uh, into something of this scale. I just thought that the, the human, the human actor performances. Now, granted, it's a Godzilla movie. I, I know I'm not looking at you know terms <laughs> of endearment what, here. That's where I was going to come it, in on. But I like, think it could have. But, but I think it could have. There could have been. It, it could be better. That's sure, all. I okay, just, but like, let's compare a, and contrast it. Let's compare and contrast it with Pacific Rim. Do we think that the uh, the human performances or the human stories were, you know, resonated with more uh, kind of depth in that film? I don't Pacific think so. Rim had the wrong human story, so I didn't even connect to it. It was it was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And Charlie Hunnam is like a piece of fucking wood with a beard. Yeah. And I've got to say, like, there aren't many monster remake Japanese horror monster film where we'd be saying that the nuanced performance of the subtlety of the underlying <laughs> no, I mean, supporting you're, you're cast. You're right, but, was, but, but I, I agree. But I know it's that almost that the film is that good that you start criticizing it at that level, right? Like, I mean, do you know what I mean? I, 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 t- I get what you're saying. You know, like, uh, I think yeah, I mean, fair enough. I just think, you know, we, yeah. we've said before on this show that, like, you know, we, we will, we'll try not to cut excuses like that. No, though. that's like, true. You know, that's true. And so I'm not, I'm, not saying any, I'm not saying that it's a bad film. I loved it. I, my yeah. son is craving to go see it again, and, I, you know, I kind of am too. I have to confess I'm ready <laughs> to go again. And so, I mean, I totally dug it. I'm just saying if I had to, like, 
pick something out of the film, you know, in terms of the construction of the film itself, not particular to the effects, it would just be that I think there were some opportunities that could have been um, taken a little bit further is all. Yeah. In, well, let me, and let that's, me that's, back that's, you that's up. That's my only yeah. critique. Let me back you up and say I don't think that the lead in Godzilla matches the lead acting done in Close Encounters of the Third Kind or, for that matter, Jaws. Um, you know, Dreyfus delivered a really good performance in in uh, Close Encounters that, you know, we I don't think we had the same level of acting in this. So I think those are films that, if you want to compare it to, because I think certainly those are the films that I feel... Uh, they share a lot of DNA. And they're brilliant effects films. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they... Yeah. Well, especially Close Encounters, just spectacular but, great stuff. But also, let's compare and contrast the system under which both those movies were made. And well, those movies in the too. 70s were made under more of an artist system where they studio heads were making movies because they wanted to make movies. And now studio heads make movies for money. And that's it's just how it is. Well, but things- I think the other thing probably is Spielberg, by the time he's making uh, certainly Close Encounters, not, not Jaws, has tremendous clout. Yes, of uh, course. That... Uh, that even though this is Gareth's second film, being the first one being Monsters, the first one was like a half a million dollar film, so it's really not, you know, it's his first big studio film. Yeah. Um, to get anything th- at a big studio level when you're not, you know, got that kind of clout. Now, interestingly, and just released today as we're recording this, Gareth oh, is going to be directing a Star Wars spin off before he directs um, Godzilla 2. So, awesome. Well, and it's the first Star Wars spin off. Yeah. It's wh- whichever one they pick, he gets it. Yeah, can I just say like he's he's like he's he is the living embodiment of like every uh, visual effects artist's dreams. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, and, and the stories that were thrown up speculatively, right, not coming from Gareth, just speculatively in the popular in the press, the industry press, like Hollywood Reporter, was that it could be a film like uh, a Boba Fett. Um, Yoda film, or it could be a Han Solo origin story. I hope story. it's the Han Solo one. But if it's a Han Solo origin story done by Gareth, like, seriously, would you not be booking tickets the second that it no, came of course. online? I mean, I would oh, be God, yeah. just, well, I can, where do I sign? I can tell you, uh, just as Mike, you said earlier, I was um, hanging out with John Montgomery here in New York years ago. Uh, I think just after Monsters came out and John was like, hey, come out. We're going to get some beers. And Gareth came out and I ended up ha- hang- hanging out with him for the night. And I can echo your sentiment in that he is super genuine yeah. film dude like like we all try to be or are. And uh, we I, talk I about Star Wars the- and Spielberg yeah. all night. You I don't know want to like- say the wrong way, but like, I mean, if I can be this arrogant or rude... He's one of us. Like, he's just yeah. hard. Yeah, he's a dude. Yeah. So, so that's sort of why I was uber jazzed for the movie. And, uh, but, you know, I, there's also some really nice little subtle things in there. Like when they, when Cranston and the kid get back to the, the old house mm-hmm. and they do that sort of, uh, dolly across the, uh, pan across the, um, the room and you see the terrarium with a with a cocoon in it it says mothra on the side of the on the side of the terrarium <laughs> yeah, like, oh yeah that's cool well, like, there are, you know there are a ton of those you know the yeah. uh, you know the shot looking over to the um power plant when the accident's happening and there yeah. are the little paper mache um sorry the origami 
figures yeah. hanging in the window, mm-hmm. which was, you know, to be... And he was like, oh, we should have done those as mudos. And then he was like asking uh, one of the effects houses, I think it was Dineg, to see, could you go back, um, or either to Alan, who was the producer. <laughs> and, and by the way, Alan, who was the visual effects producer on this, did a great job. But yeah, it was like, can we just change that to be more of a mudo origami? And they're like, yeah, well, we've got quite a lot of things to do to, to actually finish the film with Godzilla, yeah. but if we can, we'll get back to it. But yeah, there's a, and the poster in the kid's bedroom as he's leaving in the yeah. morning with the sign, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of in jokes, um, and 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 I think that they you know would would do more. I mean, this was a film that you know certainly had its work cut out for it. Um, I just want to jump, if I can, to the visual effects and flag what an A grade team were on the visual effects. So so uh, while Gareth is certainly um, you know to be given full credit for the film. Jim Rigel was the lead visual effects supervisor on it, and Jim is a legend. But then, when the third act was coming along, and they were doing a lot of work in the third act, they weren't they weren't redoing the third act, but they left a bunch of stuff in the third act they didn't have to worry about so much during principal photography because they knew it would be almost entirely digital. So when they came time to solve those problems, um, and Jim was also working doing shooting second unit, uh, they needed someone else to help him. So who do you get? John Dykstra, which you know it's just floored me yeah jesus <laughs> yeah and and i got to sit in reviews when jim and john and gareth were reviewing shots with uh mpc and dneg uh respectively and stuff and i mean like talk about a film class like i i just want to relate this one story you know i tried to not say a word but i'm sitting there and the thing had come up on the screen and you know what you meant to do in a review you meant to look at the shot and say what's working what's not working and what's working and and it was almost like before my eye could find that part of the picture to comment, John Dykstra would say, in that corner over there, I think that's looking a bit dark. And I'd be like, yeah, good point. And then, and then Jim would be I wouldn't say anything out loud, right? And then Jim would be like, and I think we sort of think, what lens is this on? Because like, the thing with it, I'm like, good point. And then, and then Gareth would be like, yeah, I just think he needs to look like he's standing out. I'm like, excellent point. <laughs> but not one of those things got to the front of my, my brain in time to beat any one of those three on any shot it was just like it was like a film school and i just sat there in complete silence just going uh i'm enjoying this um <laughs> and and so then to back those guys up here were obviously you know based out of, in this case it was on the warner brothers um lot you've got mpc and uh dneg as the two principal houses so dneg's doing the first two acts effectively mpc's doing the third act and and almost all of Godzilla, even if Godzilla was then handed over for a small part in Acts 1 or 2, the the Godzilla came from the MPC Godzilla. They had the same um, pipe. They had matching, um, uh, like, Udem pipelines for texturing and stuff. It was like an easy transition. And then inside the first two acts, you had some specialists doing some work, um, being in particular Scanline on the uh, Tsunami. So there's some other companies, and we'll come across them in a second, but... Honestly, Dineg and MPC, two of the world's best uh, visual effects houses with some really great uh, guys um, leading their teams. And uh, there was a lot of depth and a lot of experience in the visual effects that went into this film. So with that as the ground kind of plane to work from, uh, Matt, why don't you give us your critique of of how you think that team um, pulled off the visual effects now as opposed to the plot points? Oh, I think overall the visual effects were, you know, top notch. I mean, I think the the bulk of the um, Godzilla shots and the fighting uh, at the end of the film, I think, were really, really strong. Um, 
you know, a few of the shots, uh, well, one shot in particular at the beginning or, or nor, near the, nearer to the beginning of the film, um, I, I, I just wasn't as crazy about, and, um, uh, it was the shot of, um, and I, and I'm not sure why, I think it was a really difficult shot to make look good given the time of day, but it was one that you've already kind of mentioned, which was the, uh, shot through the window of the house of, with the boy watching the, uh, or through the school, maybe it was where he's watching mm -hmm. the, um, the nuclear facility start to sort of, you know, collapse in different ways and sort of cave in. And, um, I don't know, there was something, yeah, there was something about it that it just looked, um, it looked real kind of almost like planar or something like it just, it felt flat. It didn't really feel, um, I don't know. It just, it didn't, it's, it looked like a VFX shot, you know, in a way it didn't feel real somehow to me. Um, and I thought one of the reasons maybe why that would be really difficult is that it was a really hard light, you know, bright, sunny day, um, environment. And then the only other shot that I can recall being one that, you know, stuck out in my mind anyway. Um, and it was in the trailer and it was kind of tough in the trailer. And I think it got better, um, in the film, but, it, uh, it still was a little bit rough was, it's a shot um, where Godzilla, I think, is swimming underwater towards land, and uh, there's a gigantic sort of, you know, displaced swell, um, and a number of large um, naval warships are kind of... Right, uh, so he's just gone under the aircraft carrier, and he's coming correct. up on the other side, and his back is causing the water to rise, which then in turn causes these naval ships to... Yeah, that was, of, that was a, and that, that was, and that one was just a that little was bit harsh tough. in the trailer, wasn't it? That was really. It like, was really harsh in the trailer, and I still thought it was kind of tough in the film. They added a lot of secondary stuff in the film, a lot of like, um, you know, aeration of the water and a lot of kind of splashes and whatnot. But it still felt a little bit, um, just a little bit off somehow. It, it's a yeah, like it's a less toy successful, definitely. Toy Bodhi, you know, a little bit. Yeah, 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 like in the bathtub kind of vibe or something, and. Um, but I think, you know, those are like nitpicky things, but I, there were some great sequences in it. I really loved the sequence um, in the film where there was a lot of really, really neat effect shots, I thought, of the um, uh, the rail, the railroad bridge oh, sequence, yeah. I thought was really cool. And the, the way in which it was sort of, you know, in, encapsulated in a lot of the sort of fog and uh, smoke and stuff, I thought was really... It was fun, and it 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 felt really um, like a kind of a departure from the rest of the uh, elements in the film. But then, of course, the big the big battle, it it was just epic, and it was so spectacular. And I thought the way in which um, they dealt with the scale, because the scale of this Godzilla, he he's so much larger than you know any other sort of previous incarnations of the monster. And the way in which they dealt with scale and conveyed uh, that, I thought was just, it was so well executed and just, I mean, it was just a, a pleasure to watch. It was just so enjoyable. I know I said I was going to talk about the effect shots, not the plot, but I did like several things they did. Um, and I thought the character animation of Godzilla was spectacularly on on the money. Um, apparently the, the thinking now from the animation team, because we got to talk to them, um, is uh was just like a like a bouncer yeah like this kind of like uh somebody that had a lot of masculinity to him that's that's how i read it and um <laughs> but when he stopped and breathed there's a shot where he's kind of tired and you see him literally kind of hunched over a bit and breathing like to gain his energy back and it's an unusual shot like that in a monster film to make them look like they're tired and that it's really been an exertion 
and it it's a weird thing to say, but it gave him like this tremendous humanity or realism that he just wasn't this, you know, because like so many of these monsters or creatures, you fire everything at them and nothing makes any difference whatsoever. Even being attacked by Mudos makes no difference. Um, but there was a, I don't know if you guys remember the shot, but it was like a side-on uh, yeah. shot. And it was just, it was like a, it was like a moment where it was, it was real. <laughs> Is that the right word? Yeah. But it was well, just you're terrific. Just, it, yeah, I mean, they're, they're for, like you said, for lack of a better term, humanizing him, giving him some some depth because like you said and i agree you know you watch uh pacific rim as another giant thing you know battling another giant thing the the kaiju never got tired until they were killed and yeah. it was just because they got turned off but for whatever perp- reason you know broken bone or whatever in this case the mudos never got tired at least you never saw him get tired until you know whatever but Godzilla, you, I was going to point that shot out, shot out as well. That that to see him sort of stop and be like, wait, like timeout. Like he should have made a little timeout with his hands. Like, all right, guys, just give me a second. I'm the biggest thing on the planet. I just need a second. Air's a little thin up here. You know, give me a break. Uh, and even when he walks away at the end, when he kind of wakes up and walks off, he they also cut to like a like a quarter shot of him. And you see his chest barrel out and back in, like he kind of like gives like almost like a sigh, like, all right, that's done. I I can go back in the water now, you know, like, and uh, I have to say from a design standpoint, I really liked Godzilla's design. The Mudo design I liked, but I'm really, I think I said this a few shows ago, maybe it was, I forget what, what show it was, but I need to call a moratorium on the predator mouth. Like it's it's been done on every creature since the rancor and the predator, the four-pointed mouth with the big wide square beaky scream thing. It's like there's you know Super 8 did it, Cloverfield did it, like it's it's time for a new mouth for these things. Um, I did think, feeling. you know, and another another thing that I thought was so uh, really great effects-wise, too, and it was also uh, plot-wise really great because uh, it was like a, a great um, crescendo sort of in the, in the state of the audience um, being kind of enraptured with this, you know, fight scene that was unfolding before them was, um, I don't know if it happened in the theaters you guys were in, but in the theater I was in here in Richmond, I mean... <laughs> It was bigger than the first reveal of Godzilla when the um, the spikes on his back start to light up, and we see the oh, first yeah. reveal of the atomic uh, the atomic fire breath or whatever. And man, the audience went bonkers, and it was just so fun, like in that environment. And it looked really cool, and it was just this great moment of um, you know a, a classic um, reveal of this sort of you know very savory classic moment from Godzilla, but that had all of this kind of new, um, technology kind of, you know, thrown into the mix and done, uh, so to such, um, you know, perfection and detail. I thought it was just so cool. And then on top of all of that, I thought, you know, the Muto design, I didn't have a problem with the Muto design. I liked that they were two different sizes and what I really no, loved was, awesome. and it, and it kind of almost reminded me of, of monsters. There's a great moment where the two Mutos, um, kind of put their heads together and there's this kind of clicking 
kind of uh, resonating sound. And I that, thought that, that the was actually sound added, design... That was actually added later. And that was a oh, wetter... Wetter actually delivered eight shots really? as a favour. Yeah. And they, they really didn't want coverage on what they did because they didn't want to take anything away from NBC who they thought really, you know, deserved the attention. But yeah, they just... There was like crunch time and they thought it'd be really nice because there was going to be a sequence where Alcatraz was like trashed at that point. And they thought it'd be nice to have a moment between the two mutos because you, you know, they'd been trying to set up that they were well, a male it, and female. It, yeah, it helped you understand more yeah. kind of like the a good biological edition, wasn't it? life cycle. It was a great late edition. And I thought that the sound design, that was another thing I wanted to mention, um, the sound design for the the language between the mutos, the cries, as well as the kind of more subtle communication, like in that more intimate moment between the two of them. Uh, and then, of course, the revisitation of the classic Godzilla roar and then kind of the the after sort of resonating sounds of the roar i thought too were so um just really um they were so choice you know like they they really were just uh uh they added so much to every aspect of um the uh, the the visuals that were happening on screen it was really uh so well executed i like the mudo design overall i just it's the mouth start to bother me after a while but I do like this to two sizes. I do like that one of them flew and one of them didn't. Um, and I did like that moment because between the two of them, because you know, if you're going to call one male and one female and they're they're talking to each other, you know, as Cranston put it in the movie, it's nice to show them like it's it's that that thing that they're almost oblivious to their size and what they're doing. They're just trying to get to each other and something's stopping them. You know what I mean? It's like ants. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We're just like, to get yeah. the, we're, in, we're, in, we're a big anthill. They don't really care about people. They're not coming to, you know, conquer earth. They just happen to want to get to each other and there's something in their way. Yeah, they're, is, they're mating and Godzilla's the yeah. predator and he's like, no, you're not. I'm going to kill you because that's yeah. what I do. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I mean, it was so much fun. It was almost like watching a, uh, you know, a PBS nature documentary or something, you know, in that regard. I also really liked the um, the atmospherics in The Sims for that because when Godzilla disappears into the smoke, kind of pulls his head back and, and disappears or even even all the planes kind of flipping into each other and, you know, the chain reaction and his foot comes down and... They just—it was just really, really, really well done, atmospherics, and uh, and the destruction. The Sims on the buildings were were perfect. I mean, that that daytime shot in in Vegas. I mean, <laughs> that could easily be real news footage. You know what I mean? Like helicopter footage. It was so perfect. Yeah, actually, it's funny you should mention that. I wanted to raise this. It's something that. Um that I think is really interesting about the whole Godzilla uh, development from a visual effects point of view. So, so Gareth goes to MPC and makes a piece for Comic-Con, and it's a piece that has eight shots in it. And I don't think I'm aware of any film where a Comic-Con piece has played such an instrumental role as a creative device as it did on this film, because at the outset, when Gareth was kind of approaching the project, he really didn't think he'd get to direct the whole film. He thought he'd just go, like, make some stuff, and they'd go, great, but not what we're after, and you know, they get somebody else. And that Comic-Con piece that really um, had only, I think, as I say, eight shots in it, had tons of atmospherics in it, tons of dust, like he's in the dust. You can't really see what's going on. Um, and it had that amazing um, uh, bit from the um, the documentary Oppenheimer. on the... Oppenheimer. 
Oppenheimer's documentary, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And and as a narration, it had such gravitas, such huge impact in terms of box office kind of buzz. But at the other side of things, that was the template. I mean, that was the thing apparently that Jim Rigel sort of picked on, that like, I want to be in this film because I like that and how it's looking. Anyone that comes on the film, they like get shown the center, that, that um, Comic-Con piece. is like, well, this is the vibe we're after. If you want any kind of creative direction on what we're kind of thinking, this is the thing to reference. And then they redid it, or at least some shots of it, for the second um, uh, Comic-Con and updated the Muto because the Muto in the first one was a, an earlier version of what they thought it might look like, and they refined it a lot to the second version. And it became the the soul of the film's visual effects. It was the the guiding light that kept it centered that that's what we want like if you had any doubt what a shot should look at those those eight shots because that's our kind of uh like a style book and i thought that was really interesting because i you know i tend to think of those things they do for comic-con as a distraction a bit like uh well we're trying to get the film up and then we had to go and stop and do some stuff for comic-con and it was great fun but really you know get back to the film kind of thing but it, it didn't read like that at all it read much more like um, a guiding light and it struck me that it wouldn't be such a bad thing if you got an opportunity on a film to make that kind of like let's have a visual six or seven shots that are the style of the film so that right from the outset i mean at the previous stage they're referencing the comic-con piece to kind of get a vibe and feel so that everybody no matter where their job is like they're an artist working just on a texture not just on a texture but like you know but they're not a senior senior supervisor or whatever that's going to have moment-to-moment access to, to Gareth. You know, you just get a vibe, a feeling, of like this is what the kind of mood is that we're after, and it kind of informs all the artists that, yeah, this is the direction that we're going in. And then you stick to that. And so you have a very efficient pipeline, both creatively and and just in terms of shot count, that you know where you're going, and this is the, 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 the sort of thing that we've laid out. But the director gets to do it without any interference. Like he just got to do whatever he wanted, and that was what he wanted, and that's what he turned into a film. And I... That piece is just a, a, a linear line from that to the final film I saw in the cinema. Yeah, I would agree. It almost makes me think, you know, the way you describe that, it almost sounds like the way in which, you know, at least, you know, to what I've read historically, it sounds like the 21st century version of, um, you know, the 12, I think I think it was a dozen uh, production paintings that Ralph McQuarrie did for the first Star Wars before they had any, you know, special effects or anything that were done. They couldn't do anything like that back then, right? Um, and it was sort of this proof of concept that they were able to take around, uh, you know, to the various departments and, uh, studios as well, but, and say, this is what we're making. This is the vision of the thing that we're doing. And so this is kind of like a, it sounds like what you're describing to me sounds almost like a 21st century version of that, where it becomes, like you say, sort of the style book that says, you know, this is the look we're going for. This is the aesthetic. This is the vibe overall of the movie. And if everybody can sort of recognize those key touchstones, then, you know, all the departments kind of know what the, what the, where the finish line is located. The other thing I wanted to flag is as much as I am completely in love with digital visual effects, and I know you guys, uh, you know, appreciate and, and enjoy we also on the show regularly hammer the drum that if you can do it in camera, you should. And here, one of the examples of that is the halo jump. I mean, they actually jumped a bunch of guys out of a plane. And with the exception of a couple of close-ups of um, the hero uh, actor, they are all shot in a real halo jump. Now, they replaced uh, the sky to a certain extent and they added in, you know, um, streaks and stuff for the things coming off their heels. 
But that halo jump is a halo jump. They jump out of a plane and they filmed it all. And that's what uh, was the basis of everything that they did. And almost, and I, I was, you know, talking to them about, or Gareth about the visual effects. And I wanted, so tell me about all the work you did on the halo jump. Well, there wasn't that much to talk about, really. <laughs> we shot it, we edited it, and then we enhanced it. And yeah, it wasn't a major effects sequence. And oh, I that's thought- awesome. That's I mean, one of the coolest sequences in the movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it, well, especially in that wide, when you go to the oh, wide yeah. of the city and the guys drop in, I mean, it's like a painting. Well, now that, of course, is a matte painting. But um, Yeah, but, I know that. Yeah. But I'm just saying, Absolutely, I mean, just yeah. overall, the, the the frame, like you could print that frame out and put it on the wall. Yeah, Put totally. it on the wall. I mean, mm-hmm. it's gorgeous. And and it's, it, worked, it worked so well at so many levels, but nothing actually happens in that sequence. Do you know? Like it's not. I mean, there, there are moments of, you know, passing Godzilla and there are moments of whatever but it would have been so easy to say well what happens look maybe the Mudo flies in and eats three of them while they're falling and you know only two of them finally make it to the ground and they have this huge aerial battle and they hook on the Mudo's foot and then they swing off and they get caught on a telegraph pole and then they finally make it to the ground none <laughs> it's just like they they jump they set the stage and uh, they look cool coming in it's visually really rewarding but it's just it's it's its own thing, and without a lot of other well, drama, but it, it's bu- great. it builds and heightens the tension though oh, in yeah. a big way. And I think it yes, also the calm does before the storm. When it also, I think, does a lot too to convey, uh, you know, both the level of destruction that's been sort of wrecked upon San Francisco, but also um, the the scale. Again, it's again, it's about scale. They're dropping from you know however many thousands of feet, right, thirty thousand feet, and dropping into the city, and you know the the quiet before they hit the first layer of dust you know is one thing although of course too the choice of music there with the the sort of operatic uh whatever that is that apocalyptic kind of you know sounding uh score uh which is also in that first trailer i think too it's just it's such a great choice and it conveys a lot in terms of the scale of both the destruction but also of you know the mind the minuscule scale of you know, a single human soldier against you know, the, dropping yeah, into coming. this like massive, you know, thirty-story building monster or whatever. Um, what do you think about the decision? Which I think again was pretty brave. That um, the Mutos didn't really have an articulated face because if you looked at them, there just is no obvious eyes. I um, mean, there is sort of an eyeish sense of an eye from the you know, um, the sort of dash that's across their face. But there's not like an articulated eye that, you know, you can see. I mean, it's not like an eyeball that you can sort of track and stuff. It was almost like a xenomorph head in a way that it it, kind of, you know, the alien alien and aliens doesn't have uh, eyes either. But the shape of the head and the way that it's on the body, you, you, your brain automatically inserts where it might be looking. And they do that shot where it comes down really close and kind of looks at them. Uh, and I guess that's their moment to sell like, okay, there's, there is some sort of visual mechanism on the sides of this creature. Um, but I, I don't think it really matters per se. I mean, there's no reference for what it would be anyway. So I think they effectively sell the creatures being able to function without being like, you know, it took a bullet, you know, a, a RPG in the eyeball or something. I think they function in another way, too, though, from a design perspective. Like, you know, one of the things about Godzilla and even particularly, I think, in this film, his face is he has stereoscopic 
um, you know, positions on of his eyes and stuff. Predator and he, eyes, yeah. Yeah, and he's able to um, do some different expressions. And so he's sort of, in a way, he's anthropomorphized in a way. Like, we can mm. understand him as a as a, a kind of the hero in a sense. And I think by making the Mutos, um, you know, less human and less recognizable and even removing, you know, that sort of sense of an articulated face, they become more foreign, they become more alien and they're difficult. They're more difficult for the audience than to relate to on an emotional level or to so we don't hold with. it against, we don't hold it against Godzilla that he kills. No, like because- we're, we're excited to watch him kick, their asses because like we can, we don't identify with them right yeah, I mean, we want the, I think, we want the polar bear not the cockroach to win the day. exactly exactly yeah well let me ask you one other question that was raised by somebody else and, and i think it was on npr so i thought it was a really interesting point which is the original godzilla was a metaphor for uh, nuclear horror it was a you know japanese uh way of examining that issue in a in a non-direct fashion and it was the consequence of man's uh technological hubris perhaps that we'd uh, done these things that caused the earth to have these abnormalities or things suddenly come back that would pay back us for what we had done to the planet. Yet in this one, it was more like Godzilla was a natural balancing act that nature provided so that, hey, you don't have to worry about screwing the environment because uh, nature's going to find balance. So if there's a bad thing that happens in nature because of something that we did or whatever, nature's going to equal it out and we can just stand back and not have to worry. And it was almost as if Godzilla moved from being a a, a warning about nuclear uh, energy and uh, nuclear weapons to being a, you know sort of uh, benign, um, helpful force that nature's given us to just kind of correct things out and kind of even the score. Well, it's not like Godzilla's helping with global warming or anything or, you know, any environmental issues. He's just taking care of the big things that we can't handle. He's still leaving it to us to fuck up the planet, it seems to me. But do you you agree with that sort of... Yeah. He's shifted from being a a warning. Like, he in himself is not a warning of... And no. I, th- I think I think my understanding is uh, of the whole Godzilla, you know, canon of uh, films, if you will, which sounds hilarious to even say out loud. But um, it's my understanding that in the first original Japanese, the Gojira film, uh, that it is very much as you describe it as it's you know sort of a uh, you know pretty <laughs> over the top metaphor for uh, the nuclear. Um, proliferation and the you know dropping of the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of the Second World War. Um, but I also think that over the years, Godzilla becomes uh, so many other things uh, in all the other, you know, Toho films, as well as some of the other subsequent films. But even in a lot of the Toho films in the, you know, late 60s and 70s and stuff, he does become kind of a you know, a heroic kind of figure. Like, it's not so much about the um, the nuclear component as it is about um, a world where monsters like this exist and live. And I kind of felt like at least uh, my take on it was that in this, um, it wasn't really, uh, the script wasn't really avoiding that issue. It was just taking a different take on it. And it didn't bother me um, for it to be a sort of, as you said, I think Mike, uh, that it was sort of benign. I think, you know, like, eh, you know, whatever, like, that's cool. Like it's an interesting take on it and it, but it didn't take away from it from my perspective. 
Yeah, well, I um, I say there are, there are a number of shots in this that I really, really liked, uh, but I, I do think some of the other stuff that is um, that away from the, the Godzilla work was also super. I did think that uh, Scanline once again delivered on a tsunami and a set of wave effects that certainly people were yelling out in the cinema for the dog um, when I was watching it. Uh, but, I mean, I couldn't fault that sequence of tsunami. It's not, though, like Scanline hasn't done that before. So they are, uh, in a sense, given the luxury of being able to go back and kind of, um, you know, revisit in an in a slightly less realistic way than, I guess, the last time they did it, but in a more um, uh, vivid way and did a terrific job. Um, as they did the impossible, right? Yeah, and it was. I thought it was a good. I mean, it was a really good sequence. It wasn't particularly long, but it didn't feel like we'd been shortchanged either. Well, and it's yeah. not a. It's a mechanism scene. It's not a. It's not a, a direct threat. It's sort of of a secondary threat. Like hmm. Godzilla's coming to save the day, but oh yeah, we forgot. You know, he's an enormous. 500 foot tall thing and if he comes stepping out of the ocean sorry dudes there's going to be a 75 foot tidal wave that comes through your town uh so it did you guys see it in stereo or in mono i saw it stereo imax right i saw it mono i saw it stereo cinema i didn't see it stereo imax deliberately because i just have a bit of a problem with films that feel like they're very much framed for a you know widescreen kind of viewing and i don't know i just don't get that in an imax well, it's like a mini imax it's not the square yeah it's just like the really giant oversized movie screen i i don't think this film i'm not commenting for anyone else my personal opinion i don't think this film needed to be in 3d i don't think no. that it was a 3d film i mean it was obviously stereo converted and they did an adequate job in doing that don't get me wrong but I I would have happily gone and seen this in mono. It just wasn't available the day mm. the film came out when I was taking my uh, family to see it. And I, so I picked the stereo version, but no point in the stereo experience that I kind of go, wow, I'm so glad we saw this in stereo. <laughs> yeah, I kept taking my glasses off to be like, what is in stereo in this scene that's like, you know, there's not really anything that was needed to be. Um, I'm, I think I'm going to take my kid... Um, because I asked him if he wanted to go. He's seven and a half. And he's like, oh, I don't know. And then <laughs> and then I came back today because I saw it this morning. And I was like, hey, I saw Godzilla. And he's like, how was it? I was like, it was actually really cool. And then he's like, well, what's Godzilla all about? So I put him on the iPad and he watched. Someone did like a countdown of like all the 10 greatest Godzilla moments. <laughs> and by the time he went to sleep, he was like, for Halloween this year, I'm going to be Mecha Godzilla. Like he was all, he had all <laughs> the dudes in his brain already. So he's like, nice. I think I want to see it. So if I go see it again, I'll probably see it just mono, you know, regular. Yeah, I could have seen it in in stereo, but we just our my family, my wife and my son and I like I think we just generally, you know, given the choice, we just prefer to just see it see a movie in in mono. I just don't I don't know that uh, any of anybody in my household anyway is really super up for the 3d or even really the imax like i mean it, it can be really cool i've seen a couple films that way and i've been like well it's pretty neat i thought um cave of forgotten dreams was awesome in uh 3d <laughs> but uh you know and avatar was great in 3d too but it's like it i could take it or leave it just personally it's not it doesn't make a big difference for me i was wondering if i could discuss something else with you guys for a second um 
And uh, and bear with me on this, it's slightly convoluted, but um, as you know, FX Guide, and me, me personally for that matter, have uh, been a big supporter of Cinefx over the years, and we've had um, hosts on the show, including Mark Christensen, who's done work with uh, Cinefx. And in fact, I was um, lucky enough to be invited to write for Cinefx, so I wrote the Godzilla piece for Cinefx, which is coming out in the July issue of Cinefx. So obviously, it'd be great if you bought that issue, but there's other reasons why I would <laughs> like to flag that. Um, and uh, so Don, who runs uh, Cinefix, uh, spoke to me this morning, and they're, they're publishing in this issue of Cinefix, so the same issue that is going to have either Spider-Man or um, uh, Captain America on the cover, depending which one you buy, which is issue 138. There's a, there's a story there that's quite unusual, and it kind of relates to the early days of film, if you think of Godzilla. Um, if you go back to King Kong and Mighty Joe Young and stuff, um, Willis O'Brien was... Uh, recognized in very early copies of Cinefix, actually, with some really amazing pieces that Don wrote um, explaining what had happened, his contribution to film, and just how incredible um, things were. And part of that whole mythology was that um, there was a feud that he was involved with, and this has all sort of led to him being painted as a victim and that, that, you know, the lost world suffered and he was like, you know, poor chap kind of thing. And that has existed in VFX, I guess, folklore, if you want to call it that, um, ever since. And Don uh, flagged, and he's actually himself written a, a blog piece about this. So if you go to the Cinefx site, there's a blog piece about it. That in the issue that's coming out, in other words, that issue that isn't yet released but will be issue number 138, there's a, I'm going to almost call it an expose. Um, in fact, uh, to quote Dennis Murin, who's read this piece, it's a shocking betrayal fit for Extra or TMZ that finally gets told in Cinefx. It's a doozy. Um, and it's a rewriting, as it were, of history based on a whole lot of research that's happened that brings into question a lot of the assumptions that we have had about O'Brien's work and his particular treatment uh, in the feud and, and who was actually a victim and who was actually uh, kind of the evil guy uh, playing it. And it's quite extraordinary to have such a revision of history in in our industry. Certainly we sort of tend to have a pretty clean, um, non-controversial uh, past. I mean, you know, there are some people that are just clearly, you know, industry legends, and there are others that aren't. And I never certainly <coughs> questioned it. I was taken by surprise when when Don flagged this. So I would suggest, if you can, have a look at the uh, Willis O'Brien revisited uh, blog piece that he's got, which has in it quotes from people like Dennis Murin, um, Randall Cook, uh, Phil Tibbet, who are all really surprised by what this uh, story is exposing. And then, of course, if you uh, in a position get the 138th um, Cinefix, the one that, as I say, has uh, either, depending on which, they, they print two covers. It's got both um, uh, Captain America and Spider-Man on it. And this is the kind of lead story in that. I mean, it also has um, uh, other stories other than my Godzilla one on those other films. But yeah, uh, for that reason alone, I think it could be a really, really interesting thing. And I just had never thought that we'd see someone like Don Shea coming out with a kind of revision of uh, history, especially on a subject that I thought he knew so well. Um, it just never even occurred to me that Willis O'Brien would be a controversial figure like that. Did you guys? I mean, it's kind of out of left field. I know nothing of that story, but I but I would say that I, I applaud uh, Don Shea and, and Cinefix for, for you know taking on a story like that. I mean, I think that's just brilliant to be able to go and pick up... Um, you know, 
a, the greatest industry magazine, I think, of almost any industry I can think of, which is Cinefix. I mean, I've loved that magazine forever, as I'm sure we all have. And um, But for them to get into doing some really, you know, hardcore, like, you know, reporting and looking into some, investigating some of these kinds of um, uh, controversies or whatever, I, that's really interesting. And I, I would love to see more of that kind of... Um, uh, stuff in our industry. I mean, I know you, you say that, you know, things tend to be more, um, you know, positive, uh, although, you know, there are a few stories out there. I think that, uh, would be interesting to have told at some point, um, here and there about some of the, the, just things that happen, you know, in the course of doing business in an industry, uh, like visual effects or in, in Hollywood, really like, I but I mean, we'd have to. I think we'd all agree that, especially for the early Cinefix issues, because I mean, today there are a number of voices. I mean, FX Guide amongst them that you could turn to over a controversy if it was to happen today. But if you go back to right. to that pre-internet age, if it was a solid article in Cinefix in issue seven, which I think it was. I mean, I have literally every copy of Cinefix and about ten copies of number one. If it's a solid story in, in issue seven, that is pretty much history. Like that is the that is the go to definitive text that anyone would refer to, would wanting to look at the history of our industry. And and left uncorrected, it becomes the truth as we know it moving forward. I, mean, I don't think anyone could publish a book that would have more influence than Cinefix on, especially early mm-hmm. visual effects and the period before, you know, digital effects. I mean Jason, it is regarded, I think, pretty much as as gospel when Cinefix, you go and look at an early article about, I don't know, Star Wars or something. I mean, that's the... Yeah, I mean, it's it's there, it's there research material at this point. It's canon. Yeah. And, and it's... I always applaud anyone who is willing to revise earlier statements, earlier thoughts, earlier conclusions, because, I mean, you know, if you're... If, if if something needs to be changed, it should be changed. If something needs to be amended, it should be amended. I mean, as long as it's all, you know, factual and, and new information that comes to light, I absolutely agree. And I would actually go further and say I would I would love, personally, just my personal opinion, I would love to see Cinefix include one such article per issue, if possible, that looked at issues away from an individual film. Now, it doesn't have to be revising history. It doesn't have to be of this kind of order of magnitude. But... If there was any, a, a way that Cinefix could have like maybe one story every issue, every second issue, that is away from looking at just the current film and uh, informs us at this kind of level. I don't know how I that would totally, work. Or... I totally agree. I mean, I think that would be so interesting. I mean, I think, you know, and I, I hesitate to say this because I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm being negative because I don't mean this in a negative way. But I do think that, you know, oftentimes a lot of the – the stuff that you see and read, and I don't think Cinefix is uh, this way, although, you know, it does it to some degree too. I think all the uh, industry-oriented magazines do this to some extent, but there's, you know, there's a PR component to some of the narrative that is um, constructed for the people who go to report on, you know, what's happening at this studio and how did this come out and how did this go down. And so there is a, an element of PR that these individual companies um, 
you know, bring to bear when a story is being told. That being said, I mean, you know, it's it's not it's not usually that uh, likely. I don't think that there'd be some huge, you know, <laughs> ugly controversy. And you know, who wants to get into that kind of you know patent place kind of gossipy aspects of it anyway? Unless it really is something that is. Um, you know, a true story, like the, the, maybe the case you're citing, I don't, I'm not familiar with the, the story that you're um, talking about per se, but, um, you know, then to go back and sort of re-articulate and say, you know, like, this is really what went down, you know, like, I, then I think that, yeah, it's, it's, there's nothing, but nothing but good can come from that, I think, in the long run, because it's, you know, it's, it's maybe more the truth. Yeah, absolutely. So look, um, if you can, check out that uh, issue of Cinefix. Certainly check out the blog, which is off the uh, Cinefix site. Um, also, there is a uh, like an hour and a – I'm going to say an hour and 15-minute interview uh, with Gareth and I talking over at FX Guy, which is a podcast you can download. And uh, by the time you listen to this, there will also be a piece that we've done for uh, Wired. Uh, we do um, work with our media partners wide here at FX Guide. So uh, all of that and more. Plus there's a bunch of new uh, films coming out that we'll be covering. I know I had said on the last show we are going to do Spider-Man, but I decided to jump it to go to uh, directly to to Godzilla. But hopefully I'm not going to jump the next one when I say we're going to do uh, X-Men, which is a great film. I've seen it. It's, um, it's out soon. And there are a bunch of other films coming down the pipe uh, uh, not long after that I think will be make for really interesting shows right up to actually to lead up to Christmas there's some terrific stuff coming out in um, November we've had some sneak peeks and stuff behind but I want to thank you guys right now for uh, being with us and Matt where can people uh, uh, follow you or follow what you're doing you can always find me on my website it's mattwallen.com and I just want to say one last thing about Godzilla I saw it with my 10 year old son and I always talk about my son because let's face it he's the coolest guy I know <laughs> but um, he uh, as soon as the movie was over he turned to me and he said dad I gotta tell you this is now my number one top movie of all time <laughs> Sec- and he said second place the Lego movie so I think that kind of says it all okay <laughs> Um, excellent. And uh, what about you, Jason? Uh, on the Twitters, Jason Diamond, and my website with my brother, thediamondbros.com. Excellent. And if you're back on your feet, everything's sort of sorted out um, from the fire? Yep. Finally moved after about two months. Finally got all the able to buy all the furniture and all the things uh that we needed and we last sunday i came back from la from about two and a half weeks of work and was the first night we all slept in the house and we've been here since and uh it's super awesome so thanks to everybody who uh helped make that happen because uh it was a bear yeah yeah well, i'm so glad that uh well the number one thing is no one was hurt which is the absolutely yes. the most important thing uh by far and i want to thank you guys for uh as always supporting the uh vfx show we really appreciate it um if you want to support fx guide in a very tangible way the have the insider program over at uh at fx guide so insider gives you an opportunity to support us and uh, support the work that we do and as a thank you we sort of post extra bonus material that's exclusive to insider members um you can sign up uh for a seven day free trial you can also um, join for just a mere 49 bucks a year and that's uh, the insider members that really facilitate a lot of the work that we do at uh, FX Guide so we do really genuinely appreciate all the people that do that and the other people that we really appreciate are those of you that uh, repost stuff on Facebook and Twitter uh, flagging when new shows have come out and stuff so that's um, a great service just to get the word out and we, we thank you guys so much for that um, 
as I say, I think uh, Godzilla is a terrific film. It's certainly one of my favourite films. Um, though my second one is probably not going to be Lego. I like Lego. Don't get me wrong, but, but there are a couple <laughs> well, of other not, ones. You're like, not ten, though. No, that's so true. Yeah, it's true. Um, but yes, uh, it was very popular in my uh, house as well. And my, my kids are a little older than yours, but uh, girls. So yeah, it was a good film. If you haven't seen it, you shouldn't be listening to the show. But I hope we didn't spoil it for you. But yeah, it is a terrific film, and I can't wait to see Godzilla too. Thanks so much for being with us, guys. I'm Mike Seymour. See you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com.